What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow our socials on Twitter and on Facebook. So um, good to be back on the podcast. Uh, Obviously, we had a little bit of a uh, COVID snafu uh, last weekend. I unfortunately tested positive, um, you know, was not, you know, feeling myself that weekend, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to um, get a treatment, get that in me, and, you know, it was uh, almost instant that I started to feel better, so uh, we are, you know, about a week, a week out from that, you know, feeling a lot more normal over the last couple of days, um, really excited to be back with you guys. Um, on the podcast, um, just want to let you guys know, you know, obviously that um, this uh, COVID thing is very serious, and you know, I think I was lucky enough to avoid major symptoms, but I think that we all have to continue to do the best job that we can uh, to be safe um, and make sure that we are, you know, keeping keeping our loved ones safe as well. So. Um, you know, obviously, no podcast last week, which was a little annoying because there was a lot of things. There were a lot of things that happened last week that I think I had a lot of thoughts on. But you know, obviously, here we are a week later. There are still some things to talk about. There, are, you know, some teams that uh, seem to have caught their stride a little bit, which is really exciting. But uh, we're going to start today with the Celtics. You know, oddly enough, this is exactly where. We uh, left off with this podcast with the last uh, guest Friday that I did with uh, Brendan Kilbin. Um, obviously, shout out to Brendan. That was a really fun um, episode, uh, guest Friday that we did. So looking forward to hearing from Brendan again at some point. Um, I think uh, it was a great, great conversation. You know, obviously the timing of that was pretty interesting with uh, the Celtics coming off an ugly loss in that game five against the Bucks, but, you know, obviously rebounded, uh, won the series, and, you know, now here they are in the Eastern Conference Final uh, coming off a very similar type loss in uh, game three of this series against the Heat. So that's where we're starting today with the Celtics, uh, obviously trailing the Heat in the best of seven series, two games to one. Game four is tonight. Um, obviously, Game 3 on Saturday was one of the weirdest, strangest basketball games I think I've ever seen. Um, you know, it's so funny. I feel like it was one of those games where you felt like you aged 5, 10 years watching that game because so much happened. You know, guys were hurt. Guys left the game. Guys came back. You know, the Celtics fell behind by 26 points in the first half, you know, could have easily come back and finished the comeback. Way too many turnovers. You know, a, a bad game for for Jason Tatum. A great game for Jalen Brown. It just was like there was so much that happened in that game, and unfortunately, it was not a lot of good for the Celtics. It was a lot of you know having to work your way work your way all the way back into the game. You know, having to deal with two in-game injuries, you know, having to deal with the absence of Robert Williams, um, you know, it just seemed like it was 
one of those games where the Celtics just never really got in a rhythm, you know, and it was clear, obviously, with the Heat coming out and outscoring the Celtics by 21 points in the first quarter, um, but it just seemed like the Celtics had every opportunity to get back into the game, um, and they kind of kept throwing it away. You know, you look at the, the turnovers, you know, 23 to 8. You're not going to win a basketball game if you're turning the ball over 23 times. You know, you're not going to do that if the opposing team is not turning it over. You know, you may have had the chance if Miami turns it over 15 times, but it's like you turn the ball over 23 times and you have your two best players committing more than half of those, you're not going to win. Um, and I think that it's concerning because it seems like that is kind of what has become the Achilles heel of this team that, you know, they tend to play careless a little too easily. You know, they tend to try to make the tough play when the easier play is there, or it's just a, a simple matter of guys just not being focused. You know, Jalen Brown lost the ball at least three or four times um, in that second half. And, you know, you could say that Oladipo played a really good defense on Jalen Brown, because I think that's fair, that's legitimate, but Jalen Brown lost the handle um, on a bunch of those, and it just is like, to me, that tells me that you're not focusing enough, and I think it's too bad, because the Celtics had a tremendous opportunity to be able to come back and win that game, and, you know, be able to erase a big deficit and come back and win, but you know, ultimately not enough, too many turnovers. Um, the Celtics really didn't shoot poorly in this game. You know, they actually shot higher percentage than the Heat, 48%, um, 48.6% shooting to the Heat's 46.7. Celtics also shot better from three, 37.5% to 33.3%. Celtics also missed a bunch of free throws, which is, is really not... It's not good when you lose a game like this that you probably could have won. You know, the Celtics missing seven free throws. Um, the good news about that game was Jalen did get to the free throw line 12 times, but, you know, you need to make your free throws. He missed three. Um, you know, he really was fantastic in this game. 40 points, you know, really was kind of the reason why the Celtics were able to get back into the game. Um, and I think with, with Tatum, I think it's just... It's just a bad game, you know, and I think that it seems like there are more of these games that are happening in the playoffs, um, but I think that he's proven, and it should be clear to all Celtics fans that he has proven that he's been able to, you know, follow up those bad games with good games. You know, you saw the clearest example in Game 6 last round, you know, the Celtics lose you know, probably, that's probably one of the worst losses they've had this season. You know, blowing a 14-point lead in Game 5, he comes back the next game and drops 46. Now, I'm not saying that Jason needs to score 46 points in this game tonight, but I think he has proven to you that he can be able to, you know, step up when it really counts. Um, and I just think that there's a little... There's, there's something with certain people that it's very easy for them to be able to kind of jump on Jason Tatum, especially when he doesn't play well. And I just think it's it's almost to the point where there are certain people 
in the Boston media that almost want him to fail. And it's almost a, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's strange to me. And I just think that he has proven that he's been able to bounce back and perform at a high level after losses. You know, the Celtics are 4-0 after, after a loss in the playoffs this year. And it just almost seems like, sure, Tatum has had some bad games. Absolutely. You know, it's fair to criticize him after after game three but I think there are certain people that I think are criticizing him where it's coming from a place of you know see I told you he's not that good instead of kind of a like you know oh he's had a bad game and it's like look he's the superstar of this team you live and die with how he performs and I don't know I think that there are too many people that are kind of rooting for him rooting for him to fail and are like oh see look he can't step up when it matters most. He cares more about, you know, complaining to the officials and all that. And look, I'm not a person that's going to say that, oh, complaining to the officials doesn't matter because it does. You know, when you looked at how they performed toward the end of game five against the Bucks, the Celtics had too many of those instances where they're complaining to the officials and the Bucks, you know, get a basket of court. But I think the biggest thing for this team is to stay the course. Um, and I think that you should feel comfortable that they can do that. You should feel comfortable that they, you know, understand that turning the ball over at the rate that they did in game three can't work game four, you know, that they have to be better. They have to be better focused. They have to, you know, play more connected. And I think that you've seen that this team can play well against the Heat. This is not a series where the Celtics have looked overmatched. And I understand that Part of that is frustrating to people where it's like, okay, you're so much better than this team. Or, well, I shouldn't say it like that, but you appear to be better than this team. You know, why are we messing around and, you know, not playing our hardest? But I also think, like, that tells you that if the Celtics can play the way that they're capable of, they can beat anyone in the NBA. And I think that that is kind of what you should take solace in, is the fact that they can play at a high level when they're together. And, you know, I think that some people would point to, oh, you know, you've had some guys hurt in the games this series, but I don't think that that matters. You know, obviously from a personnel perspective, it does matter, but I think it's like you are capable of playing at a high level no matter who is playing. You know, as long as you have two or three key guys, there really shouldn't be any issues with, you know, how you play and how focused you are. Um, you know, this, again, was not a bad defensive game by the Celtics. You know, I think that there was some some overhelping, especially in the first half, but I think the Celtics are a team that I think they are a team that they're really never out of a game. You know, this is not a team that I think you are worried about in terms of, oh, you know, this team is way more talented than they are the Celtics, you know, can't see them winning. You know, I think that they have to play at that high level. They have to play at the, you know, little turnovers and, you know, playing with attention to detail. Um, and I think really that's the biggest thing. And I do think that, you know, look, this is a Celtics team that has, you know, been doubted all season long, you know, and I think that this is a team that has the ability to bounce back. I mean, they did it three times in the Bucks series. You know, I think that 
you know, they were never ahead in the Bucs series. They were always behind or tied. Um, and I think it tells you a lot about the resolve of the team that this team could have easily folded after losing game five last round. You know, they could have walked into game six and be like, okay, we blew a chance in game five, our season's over. They chose not to sulk and they won the series. You know, they really, in a way, kind of dominated those last two games. You know, the Celtics were able to dominate game two of this series. You know, this is not, you should not feel that, oh, you know, this is over. You know, losing game three of a, of, of a playoff series typically is not a make or break game. You know, I think that if the Celtics are going to lose this series, it's not going to be because of game three. And I think, you know, you want to have the confidence that they can bounce back and they can say, okay, we're going to play with focus. We're going to play with the correct energy. You know, and I think that that's the biggest thing. If they can come out with the right energy, they should be fine. You know, I don't think that there's necessarily a lot that the Heat are doing that is frustrating the Celtics. You know, I think that you maybe did see some frustration in Tatum's game in game three with, you know, how hard P.J. Tucker was playing defense. And, you know, that's something that he's going to have to deal with. That's something that he's going to have to play through. You know, the the great elite players in this league have all had to deal with, you know, defenders like that, guys who are going to try to get in your head, guys who are going to play you physical and, you know, force you to adjust your game. And I think that's kind of what we saw in game three, that, you know, Jason was not able to adjust to that, to that defense, to that level of defense. And I think he is going to have to understand that, you know, it's not going to be easy. You know, guys are going to play you hard because you are a star. You know, you are the franchise player. So that's going to be curious to see uh, what his kind of offensive matchups look like. You know, do the Heat pin P.J. Tucker on him? And if that's the case, does Jason find a way to... Does he find a way to get other guys involved? You know, does he find a way to... Excuse me. Um, Does he find a way to... Get more easy baskets. You know, is it kind of a meeting force with force type of thing? You know, or is it, you know, I understand that the Heat are going to play hard defense on me. They might try to double, you know, they might try to play physical. You know, is there a way to be able to make plays for other guys? And I think that. That is the part of his game that has greatly improved this year is his ability to, you know, be an efficient player, but be able to create shots for other guys. And I think that you could see that early in this game because I often feel like that's kind of what he does to kind of get himself into the game is creating for other guys. So I'm curious to see how they come out of the gate game four. You know, I'm not necessarily expecting that they're going to be, you know, up by 15 points, but it's how you're playing offensively. And I think how you're playing will kind of determine how the rest of the game goes. So going to be interesting to see. Um, Also, 
there are a couple of injury updates in this series, or in this game tonight. I think Tyler Hero has been ruled out for the Heat, so that is kind of important. Um, he's kind of struggled, I would say, in this series. I think that he's not necessarily been the same player in the playoffs as he has been in the regular season, but he's out tonight. A um, bunch of other guys for the Heat are day-to-day. -day. It does appear that Jimmy Butler will play tonight. He left Game 3 at halftime with knee inflammation, did not return. Um, and then a bunch of other guys in the Heat are day-to-day. -day. Gabe Vincent, Kyle Lowry, Max Struess, and P.J. Tucker. And then in terms of the Celtics, Marcus Smart obviously suffering the pretty ugly ankle injury um, during Game 3. He's day-to-day, -day, but I do believe that he is going to play. Um, and I believe that Robert Williams is still questionable with uh, the knee. I think that Jason Tatum is, I think it was probable, I think he's probable with the uh, shoulder uh, stinger, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, you know, the hope is the Celtics can be fully healthy in this game. You know, we'll see what, what's going on with, with Rob Williams. You know, it seems like the, the kind of the bone bruise has become kind of an issue uh, for him as to that's I think that's why you miss game three um, and why you miss some games in the Buck series I think Brendan and I uh, the last guest Friday we may have been speculating a little bit that it was his uh, surgically repaired knee but I think it's his other knee that I think was bumped by Giannis in I think maybe it was game three of the Bucks series um, but you know we'll see what he can do um, but, you know, as I said a couple minutes ago, you know, I think it's, you know, it'd be huge to have Rob Williams back because he does help you a lot defensively, but it shouldn't matter who's playing. You know, I think that game one, the Celtics obviously didn't have Marcus Smart, didn't have Al Horford, but you still could have won that game if you didn't turn the ball over, you know, and play such bad basketball in the third quarter. You know, I don't think game three had you know, a lot to do with Robert Williams' absence. I mean, Bam Adebayo obviously got going and had a huge game. Um, but I think the Celtics still were able to almost withstand that. You know, you saw how well that they played coming back in that game. I don't really think it matters who is in the lineup. You know, as long as you're playing hard, you're playing the right way, and you're playing connected offensively and defensively. You know, I think that, I don't know, I think that there are too many people you know, on Twitter and social media that get way, very, way too concerned about who is or isn't playing, you know, and then it's like, oh, how are we going to win without this guy? And it's like, the Celtics, if they don't turn the ball over to the rate that they did in game three, they probably win the game. You know, if the Celtics don't, or if the Heat don't have that massive run in game one, the Celtics maybe have a chance to win that game. So I don't really think it's a matter of who is and isn't playing. It's a matter of how you play with the players that you have. So, you know, that's kind of all I'm going to say on that. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens tonight. Uh, I do think the Celtics come back and even the series. Um, but obviously, you know, things would get very difficult if the Heat were able to win this game in Boston. But uh, hopefully the Celtics come out on top. Game four is tonight at 8.30 at the Garden. Really not a fan of these 8.30 starts. Um, I'll be honest, I don't really fully understand it. You know, 
I do get it for the kind of West Coast people, but I mean, I don't know. It's just like, I don't know why we're kind of, you know, moving game times because of the West Coast for, you know, people that, yeah, of course, they probably do want to watch the Eastern Conference Finals, but it's like, you're asking the Celtics and the Heat to play games, you know, an hour later than when they typically play. And I just don't think that's really fair to the people on the East Coast. Like, I understand that, you know, you want the people on the West Coast to watch, but it's like, what about the, the coast where the game is actually taking, play, taking place? You know, 8.30 is just unreasonable. I think that there's no reason why the games can't be at 8 o'clock. There's absolutely no reason why a game can't be 30 minutes earlier. But, you know, it's whatever. You know, but yeah, if you think this is bad, the, the NBA Finals, they start games at 9 o'clock. So it's even worse. So, again, you know, I get it that it's multi, it's, you want to get as many eyes as you can on a game, but it's just like at, at what cost? So, you know, that's kind of just my thoughts on that. Um, just some other Celtics thoughts. Uh, Marcus Smart obviously winning Defensive Player of the Year. He was named to the first all-defensive team for the NBA, along with Rudy Gobert, Giannis, Mikhail Bridges, and Jaron Jackson Jr., um, and then Robert Williams making the um, all-defensive second team. They have two all-defensive teams, first and second. Uh, Bam Adebayo, Robert Williams, obviously, Matisse Thibel, Drew Holiday, and Draymond Green making the all-defensive second team. So great honors for both uh, Marcus and Rob. Don't think that it's too far off for uh, Rob to be able to be on one of those first teams. I mean, I think he doesn't get that knee injury. He maybe makes first team. Uh, so uh, a great honor uh, for both of them. So really exciting there. Um, so we're going to move on from the Celtics, get to the streaking Red Sox, who are finally playing the way that they should offensively. Um, an exciting, dramatic win yesterday afternoon against the Mariners, the Red Sox, finishing the sweep with an 8-4 to win in 10 innings. Franchi Cordero with the uh, walk-off grand slam. That was a pretty wild game. You know, I think that uh, you're finally seeing the offense come together with this Red Sox team, which is really exciting, you know. You had good, good series for a bunch of guys. You know, Cordero obviously with a big home run. He obviously had the huge triple um, in the eighth inning of Saturday's game that led to a win. Jackie Bradley had a number of hits. He had two doubles yesterday. Um, and then Trevor Story, you know, obviously he's been on fire recently. The Red Sox are, you know, finally getting good offensive contributions from a bunch of different guys in the lineup, which is really huge. You know, the, the averages have gone up for a few guys. Players have come through with big hits, which is awesome. You know, I think it's really just situational hitting with this team that I think you are finally starting to see hits with runners in scoring position. You're starting to see, you know, home runs, especially with guys on, guys on base, which has been huge. You know, Bradley had a huge home run. Um, on, I think it was Friday. It was Friday night when they won seven to three, and then Trevor Story obviously 
you know, going crazy with three home runs in that game la uh, last Thursday against the Mariners and then hitting a grand slam the next night. Um, he obviously had another home run yesterday. So um, it's been a really kind of blistering stretch for this team offensively as they've scored uh, five or more runs in uh, five straight games, all games that they have won. They have won five in a row for the first time this year. I think it's the highest win streak that they've had. They actually hadn't even won three in a row before Friday's win. So, you know, it seems like the team is turning a corner. You know, the offense is, is starting to return for for certain guys. You know, obviously, Devers, Bogarts, J.D. Martinez have had no no trouble with their games offensively, but I think that finally you're starting to see some other guys come together, you know, and make, get some hits, get some big, you know, situational, hit, situational hits. Um, I mean, I still think that there could be something that you could do offensively, but I think that, you know, seeing someone like Franchi Cordero has been huge. Um, how well he's been playing recently with some key hits in the last couple of games. Um, you know, hopefully that continues for a guy like Cordero, who I think has had a lot of, I don't want to say pressure on him, but I think, you know, a lot of people were not really sure about who he was as a baseball player, you know, when they made the trade for, for Benintendi. You know, this has really been the first time that he's been with the Red Sox that he's actually made a good impact. So, you know, hopefully that can continue for him and hopefully the Red Sox can get big key hits from, you know, everyone in the lineup, whether it's, you know, Kike Hernandez, whether it's Christian Vasquez with the go-ahead RBI hit in the uh, eighth inning of Saturday's game. You know, whether it's Jackie Bradley with, with the home run Friday night, you know, I think it's really important that you can get contributions from anywhere in the, uh, anywhere in the lineup. And I think it kind of, in my opinion, was kind of a matter of time before uh, Trevor's story started to kind of catch his rhythm. Um, I didn't think that he was going to catch his rhythm quite like this. You know, if you see how well he has played. Um, okay, I don't know why that's not... Okay. The ad is not letting me mute it, so sorry about that noise. Um, okay, now we got it. Um, that Trevor Story's last seven days have been unbelievable. Seven games played, has had 25 at-bats, nine hits, 10 runs scored, six home runs, 14 RBIs. You know, you look at his, you know, regular season before the last seven games, you know, one home run, 15 RBIs. It was like, it kind of was crazy how quickly he seemed to kind of turn his game around. You know, I figured that it was going to take him some time to kind of figure things out, you know, with the truncated uh, spring training with the late signing, you know, he didn't play a lot of spring training games. So, you know, it's great to see that he is starting to perform his head uh, hits in three of his last four, um, including five home runs, which is you know, unbelievable. I mean, obviously, he's not going to hit five home runs every game, but just seeing him kind of get into 
a rhythm offensively is huge because, you know, obviously you think about guys like Vasquez and Kike Hernandez and um, JBJ, they're not going to necessarily contribute all the time offensively. You know, those are kind of guys who I think contribute every once in a while, but having someone like Story who you kind of expect that he's going to be one of their best hitters along with Bogarts, Devers, and Martinez, you know, it makes your lineup that much more dangerous. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously that's one of the reasons why the Red Sox signed him because they wanted to make this offense as dangerous as it could. You know, obviously when you look at how good they were in the playoffs last year with Kyle Schwarber, you know, you add a bat, someone like Story, who can, you know, just be kind of a, kind of a continuation of your really good offensive bats, you know, and someone who can do it consistently, which I think is really important for this team right now. So offensively, the Red Sox have figured things out. And I think that, you know, despite the, uh, the bullpen and the starting pitching, having some issues from time to time, I think that you have seen a, you've seen a team that everything is kind of coming together. Um, and one of the players that has kind of put everything together recently is Nick Pavetta, um, had a really tough start to the regular season. Um, but you have seen some really good outings, especially the last three games, uh, for Pavetta. He has pitched 22 innings in his last three starts, has given up 10 hits and two run runs. So, you know, if you kind of Think about that. 22 innings, 10 hits, you know, two runs. You know, he's been pretty spectacular. Um, obviously had the, uh, I almost said no hitter, the uh, complete game, which, you know, at this point, when you think about pitching in Major League Baseball these days, a complete game is almost as impressive as a no-hitter, you know, which is kind of wild, but you think about the the days now where you have relief pitchers that are kind of much more of the important pitchers in the game these days. You know, having a starter who can go the entire game is pretty much as impressive as, you know, pitching a pitching a no-hitter. Sorry, guys, I don't know what is going on with ESPN today, but they uh, keep wanting to play ads with with sound, even though I've turned it off, so that's a little annoying. But you've seen some really good outings from Pavetta recently. You know, the complete hit shutout was, or the complete game two hit shutout, you know, was outstanding. Pitched seven innings the outing before, pitched six innings the outing before um, in a 10-inning loss to the White Sox, but... You've seen some really good performances from him recently, which is all the more important with the rotation. You know, when you have a team that's been struggling offensively, you can, you know, count on the pitching to get you, you know, five, six innings into the game um, so that you don't have to get to a point where the bullpen is being, you know, overtaxed. So been really impressed with with Pavetta recently which I think you know all the all the more better for your rotation if you can get another guy going um, who's kind of struggled you know I think you've had 
some decent starts. You know, Whitlock's been a revelation this year. Obviously, he did have... Obviously, did have um, a tough game the other night, the other day. I think it was Saturday afternoon. He got hit for five runs in a couple innings. But I think, for the most part, he's been really good. Obviously, Evaldi's been great. Um, has kind of struggled to get some wins because, unfortunately, the bullpen uh, keeps giving away leads when he pitches. So that's a little annoying. But, you know, he was excellent yesterday. had 11 strikeouts. So, you know, if you can get another starter like Pavetta, you can get him going. It makes things a lot better for your offense. So I think that it's definitely a good sign to see him kind of figuring things out a little bit too. So taking a look at the Red Sox and what is kind of up next for them. They will play a, or they are actually off today. They are traveling to Chicago to play the White Sox. A three-game set in Chicago starting tomorrow night. And then the Red Sox will play a, a like a, a five-game a five game set. It looks like against Baltimore, they actually have a game that was rained out earlier in the season, so they will play a doubleheader on Saturday. So, you know, the White Sox have kind of come into the season in a similar way as the Red Sox is, you know, a team with a lot of promise, especially offensively, um, you know, started slow, much like the Red Sox. So this will be an interesting three-game series. in Chicago starting tomorrow night with uh, Nick Pavetta will pitch for the Red Sox as they open the three-game set in Chicago and then obviously five games against Baltimore coming up this weekend including a game on Memorial Day at seven o'clock um, so tremendous opportunity for the Red Sox to keep it going uh, with some teams that they're going to be playing coming up that are not going to be very good. So a huge opportunity against Baltimore, um, Cincinnati, and Oakland. Red Sox will be going on a West Coast trip in a couple of weeks. But three-game set against the White Sox, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then five games against Baltimore on Memorial Day weekend. So that will be interesting to see how the Red Sox can do against the White Sox and the Orioles. So I think that that would probably do it for the Red Sox. We're going to move on. Uh, we're going to talk about the Bruins, unfortunately. And, you know, I know, as I said, uh, when uh, I was thinking that we would talk on the podcast last week um, about the Bruins, obviously, before I got the positive test. You know, it was going to be a lot of, a lot of kind of fresh, fresh wound type of stuff with the Bruins, with you know them losing in the game in the game game seven against Carolina. But you know, obviously, it's been a week later, and um, you know the wounds are not really exactly as fresh. But you know, I'll be honest uh, to give you guys a little bit more context. I actually tested positive in the middle of the Bruins game seven against Carolina. So, you know, as you can imagine, it was hard for me to uh, focus on the game. 
And so I felt like for the first couple of days after, you know, dealing with some of the symptoms that I had to deal with, it was, you know, kind of hard to break down kind of my thoughts about that series. You know, now a week has passed and, you know, I feel like some of the thoughts that I have have come together a little bit more clearly um, after the Bruins lose that game seven, three to two against Carolina. You know, obviously home team won every single game. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on the Bruins because, you know, there's other things to get to, but um, just really, really disappointing. You know, I think it's the, the easy way to put it that I think, you know, again, you had a series in which your top guys performed the way that you thought they were going to. You know, Bergeron was a point per game. Pasternak was basically a point per game. Marchand at 11 points. Um you know, just disappointing. And, you know, the disappointing part is it just seems like the issues that the Bruins have had in the last couple of years in the playoffs, it's always been the same thing, that you get good scoring from the guys that you expect, but it's like it's the secondary guys that, you know, don't get it done. And there are definitely some guys that deserve some blame uh, for how they performed in the first round. You know, Taylor Hall didn't really make as much of a difference as I think he should have. You know, he had four points in seven games at a couple of goals. Um, Eric Halla, you know, had three points. Craig Smith had no points. You know, you look at some of those guys where you kind of need more production from those guys. You know, I think Charlie Coyle had a decent series. You know, I think that he kind of played better on special teams. And he did necessarily at five on five. And, you know, it just seemed like the story was the same. The Bruins couldn't, you know, muster anything at five on five and, you know, had defensive breakdowns at times where you really couldn't, you really could not afford to have them. And that's kind of what happened in game seven. You know, Max Domi gets loose for a couple of goals. Um, the Bruins just have a couple breakdowns and, you know, couldn't do really much offensively in Carolina. You know, which was kind of confusing as to, you know, why the Bruins played so much better at home than on the road. And yeah, you can easily point to, okay, matchups. The Bruins could dictate matchups at home, but, you know, you need to have a, you need to have a better group at five on five scoring so that a team can't simply just dictate the matchups and that's it. You know, like you want to have a team that, can play at a high level no matter what the matchups are. And I think, you know, it obviously just didn't come together for this team. And, you know, I think on one hand, yes, it's disappointing because there was a lot of promise with this team going into the playoffs, I think considering how well they played over the last couple of months. But, you know, at the end of the day, Carolina is a number one seed. At the end of the day, Carolina is a cup contender. You were not. The Bruins were not, and I think that there are some people that I think needed to come to terms with that, that this team is not wasn't really as good as people thought they were, you know, and I think that maybe people would feel differently if the Bruins were able to get some secondary scoring from guys like Craig Smith and Taylor Hall and a little bit more from Jake DeBrusque. You know, you might feel better about this series, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, the it's a frustrating loss but this is not a team that 
you know, you should feel like, oh, you should have beaten this team. It's like, no, Carolina's a very good hockey team, and, you know, I thought coming into this series, Carolina was going to win the series unless the Bruins played close to perfect hockey, and, you know, they almost did, but they never got a road win, and I think that was kind of the difference in this series is Carolina winning the games at home, you know, the home ice advantage, it was going to be what it was going to be, but, you know, I think that the Bruins with the opportunities that they had, you know, early on in some of those games in Carolina really kind of was what the difference was, that the Bruins couldn't solve Auntie Ranta in the first 10 minutes of those games in Carolina. You know, Carolina gets a bouncer, gets a, a penalty call that falls their way, and, you know, it all just kind of snowballs from there. And it just seemed like the Bruins were always unable to kind of stop the the avalanche, so to speak. So, you know, it's a, it's a frustrating way to end the season. Um, but I think that, you know, going into this, going into this playoff season, going, going into a series against Carolina where, yeah, they kind of are, we're a better team than you. You know, I think that it's, it was hard to expect that this team was going to win this series. It was hard to expect that, you know, they were going to knock off Carolina again because this is a Carolina team that you've knocked out of the playoffs a couple years or two years in a row in, in 19 and then in the bubble. Um, you know, this is a team that I think is is better equipped to go deeper in the playoffs than you were. And, yeah, if you want to get technical and be like, oh, well, the Bruins should have signed, you know, more impact players in the offseason – I think that that's a it's, a, it's a different argument, you know, I think that it's fair, but I think when you looked at this team presently constructed going into the playoffs, it was hard to pick them over Carolina, because Carolina's just so deep at so many different positions, you know, I think that you thought that because, you know, Ranta ended up starting the majority of the games, you know, I think that we all thought that Freddie Anderson was going to come back at some point in the series. He still hasn't returned for them um, as they're in the second round against the Rangers. But, you know, that was kind of the area where you thought, okay, we could take advantage of that. And, you know, the Bruins didn't. They didn't in Carolina when, you know, they really mattered, when they really needed to come away with one of those games. Um, so I think that it's, you know, it's it's frustrating. And I think that it's, especially frustrating when you consider that the things that the Bruins, it's like the common denominator of the Bruins playoff exits have been the lack of secondary scoring and, you know, the inability to kind of stop the bleeding, um, you know, kind of is, is why they're, why they're sitting at home right now. And, you know, having to watch Carolina possibly go really far in the playoffs. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough exit, but, you know, this is a team that I think is dealing with a lot of, I don't want to say questions, because, you know, yeah, you kind of don't know what Bergeron's future is, but, you know, the Bruins aren't really in a position where they have a lot of cap space necessarily. Like, if the Bruins are going to make any moves this summer, it's going to be, it's going to have to be in the trade market. And I think that, you know, I don't know that you're going to get you know, marketably better players than what you have. Like, 
the group of players that you have right now is probably going to be the group of players that you have next season. So, you know, it's just a matter of you kind of just have to work with what you got. Like, this is not going to be an off-season where you can go out and spend, you know, millions of dollars to try to, you know, patch up your team. You know, they tried to do it last summer. You know, I think some of the signings obviously turned out to be, you know, not as helpful as perhaps they could have been. You know, I think that Nick Foligno, for all his, you know, leadership qualities, you know, he kind of fell short. You know, didn't give you that type of impact that you were hoping. You know, I think that some of the other free agent acquisitions, you know, Olmark, I thought he played really well. You know, Derek Forbert, I thought he was one of their best defenders in this series. You know, it was a really good penalty killing. You know, had that game where he blocked like eight shots or whatever it was. He was pretty much as advertised, you know. You look at someone like Nosek, who I think, you know, I kind of go back and forth because you didn't really have any finishing ability for him. I mean, I think he had three goals this entire season. You know, the signing that you made, I think was a smart signing at the time, but clearly he didn't really amount to much. You know, I think that Halla did probably exactly what you would expect for a player like him. You know, he's never going to be someone that's going to elevate guys over the top. I mean, I think he's a nice player. He fits in pretty well with the Bruins and how they play on the rush. But obviously, in the playoffs, as the games tighten up a little bit, you know, the rush opportunities are not you know, as frequent as they would be in the regular season. And the Bruins, you know, obviously had plenty of chances, but they couldn't capitalize. And I think, you know, you can point at Halla, but you could also point at Taylor Hall. You could also point at Craig Smith. And it's like, you need those guys to score timely goals. And they just didn't do it. And I think, you know, it's frustrating. But then again, it's like, I don't think this team is in a position where things are going to get drastically different, you know, unless they decide to just tear it all down and I don't think the Bruins are in that position either because you look at where they are in terms of the goaltending they're pretty solid you think about where they are defensively they're pretty solid you know like the forward group is kind of what you need to change but you know with money tied up with certain guys it's like I don't know what they're really going to be able to do unless they're you know looking in the trade market so you know, at the end of the day, it's it's frustrating, um, and it's kind of another off-season where, you know, you go into the off-season maybe a little earlier than you thought, and you're going into the off-season kind of feeling the same way that you've felt over the last couple post-seasons, that it's kind of the same thing that keeps happening. So, you know, I think that it's, the, the, the group is going to have to figure it out, and you know, whether it's with or without Bergeron is kind of remains to be seen. Um, you know, I think that from a personal standpoint, I don't really care what Patrice does. You know, sure, it would be great to see him return, but I would also understand, you know, what he, what would be his decision if he decided to walk away, if he decided that he wants to spend more time with his family. You know, he's got three kids, you know, he's someone who I think really values family. And I think that you could see him stepping away. You know, I think that 
on a personal level, again, I don't really care what he decides, whether he decides to come back or, or not. Um, I mean, I think if I'm thinking about it, I think that he comes back. You know, I think that, you know, there could be a an element of, you know, he believes in this group still and believes that this group can, you know, win another cup or go deep in the playoffs. You know, I think that he's at a position where I think he is, he should be able to make his own decision and, you know, whatever he decides is going to be what he decides. And the team just kind of goes from there. I do believe that he returns, but, you know, who knows? I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, so just some other Bruins thoughts, things that have happened over the last couple of days. The Bruins signed Jakob Zaboral to a new two-year contract as he was uh, going to enter Group 6 free agency um, this summer. So he signed a new two-year deal, which is great. You know, I think that he's someone that has played really well for the Bruins over the last two or so years. You know, obviously had the, the ACL injury in December, but, you know, I think when you look at someone like Josh Brown, who played a couple games for the Bruins after being traded at the deadline, you know, he probably doesn't come back as he's a free agent. So I think you think about someone like Zaboral kind of being in, being an extra defenseman. One player that I'm very curious about in the offseason is Mike Riley. You know, I think that you could see him get moved potentially um, in a trade. Um, but that's also, you know, kind of further down the road. Um, and then Johnny Beecher, the Bruins' first round draft pick in 2019. Yes, 2019, 30th overall pick. Uh, played at Michigan for the last few years. Uh, all signed his. Um, entry-level contract, so he will, you know, join Providence next season. You know, maybe you see him in Boston. I'm kind of curious to see what the future holds for him. Um, but, yeah, you could definitely see him at uh, Bruins training camp. You know, and maybe he challenges for a spot. You know, I think you're also going to see the same thing from uh, Lysel, too, which will be very exciting. Um, and then in terms of the Bruins... And kind of moving forward with kind of the, uh, the the management, upper management, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I think that there are a lot of criticisms of a bunch of people, you know, at the end of the Bruins season. I think that, you know, it, it kind of bothers me that I feel like this fan base has uh, an easy propensity to kind of pinpoint one scapegoat for why things didn't go well. And I'm not saying that Don Sweeney is blameless because he certainly isn't. You know, I think that he and Cam Neely and kind of the higher up ownership probably deserves most of the blame for why the Bruins are in the position that they're in. You know, not saying that, oh, it's their fault the Bruins couldn't win the first round series. But I think it's kind of like when you think about the decisions that the front office has made drafting and, you know, free agency, you know, they've, they've missed on adding talent that could help the Bruins kind of get pushed over the top. And so I think there are positives and negatives to, you know, each of Cassidy, 
Don Sweeney and Cam Neely. And I think, you know, each of them probably share some blame for why the Bruins, you know, lost in the first round. I'm not saying that it's all on these three guys, because I do think that there were some players that didn't come up, come up big in the playoffs when they should have. And I think that there are some certain guys that do deserve some blame too. Um, But I think just going back to this fan base, it's like when you lose in this context, like the Bruins did, it's not really one person that you can point at and be like, that person is the reason why we lost this series or that person is the reason for why we're in the position that, that we're in. And I don't know. I don't know what it is about this fan base that always needs to kind of identify one scapegoat and then be like, it's this person's fault. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think it's, to be honest, I think it's less on Bruce Cassidy. You know, I think that there are some people that think that it's kind of, he's to blame for, for reasons I'm honestly not even sure. Um, you know, it was interesting, some of the comments that Neely made about, you know, maybe changing the way that they do some things. Um, and I don't think that they were comments that were meant to be taken in a way that, oh, like, we don't like what Cassidy's doing as a coach, we're going to fire him. You know, I think I thought it was more along the lines of like, okay, here are some things that we can do differently, not with a different coach, but like, here are some things you know, stylistically that maybe we can try. So, you know, I don't think Bruce Cassidy is leaving. You know, I don't think that he's leaving anytime soon. Like, I think these three guys are going to be around. You know, I think that Sweeney's getting a contract extension. I mean, I wouldn't have given it to him, but, you know, ownership and whoever, you know, is going to make those make those decisions and, you know, I try not to get over overly negative on this podcast, but I do kind of think that the ownership, like Charlie, like uh, Jeremy Jacobs and the, like the ownership of the team doesn't really care about the hockey aspect. And I think they really only care about making money. And I think that, you know, if you bring back Don Sweeney, you're not losing anything money wise. Like people are still going to come to games you know, that there's kind of a a sense of like, oh, we're just going to hire our own guys. We're going to keep our own guys. And, you know, not, not saying that that's why, but it, that's why Sweeney's sticking around. But, you know, I feel like this team does need a fresh set of eyes in terms of evaluating professional talent. Um, I do think that the Bruins drafting has gotten better over the last two years um, because I think they've identified guys who can be really good players, but I think that you've had kind of had some past trip-ups in the draft in 2015, 2016, um, and some, you know, first-round picks that haven't really panned out to what you would expect for a first-round pick. So, you know, I think that just my thought about Sweeney, because I know that he's a very kind of polarizing topic with the Bruins right now, you know, I don't think that he is a bad GM, you know, I don't think that he's as bad as some people on Twitter make him out to be. Um, But I also don't think that he's done like an excellent job either. You know, I think that you can point to the drafting, you can point to some failed free agency moves, 
you know, trades that didn't go your way, whether it was, you know, the player didn't fit or the player, you know, suffered an injury, because that's happened a couple times with some of the trades that they've made. Um, so, you know, again, I don't think it's all on one person, but I think it's up to those three guys to kind of, you know, change things a little bit and try to make this team harder to play against, um, especially especially this time of year. So going to be curious to see what goes on this summer. Um, I'm not really expecting that anything crazy is going to happen. You know, I think the craziest thing that happens is maybe Bergeron retires, chooses not to come back, and the Bruins have to scramble to identify, you know, who's going to be that number one center. Do they move some money around and try to sign someone, or do they try to trade for someone like Mark Shifley out in, in, in Winnipeg, um, you know, or I suppose you stick with internal options, which, you know, doesn't make me feel super good right now, but, you know, it, uh, it, it, it would, you know, going to be what it's going to be, as they say. So I think that probably is it for the Bruins. Obviously, we'll update you guys any more further on any other Bruins related topics, whether it's, you know, Bergeron deciding what he wants to do, uh, trades, you know, the draft obviously will come up at some point in late June, so we'll keep you updated on that. So we're going to move over to the Patriots, talk a little bit about them. There obviously was big news last week with the, or was it last week? Actually, I think it was the week before uh, when the schedule got released, but obviously didn't get a chance to talk about it last week. So uh, here we are this week, going to talk about it, take a look at the Patriots' schedule uh, for the upcoming season, take a look at their uh, preseason games. Those were also announced around the same time, so the Patriots will open the preseason on August 11th against the Giants, remember, there are three-piece preseason games this season that started last year. Um, so the Patriots will host the Giants August 11th, and then August 19th, the Patriots will host the Panthers, and then August 26th, the Patriots will travel to Vegas to take on the Raiders. I believe that there will be joint practices with that game. Might The Patriots may be practicing with another team, maybe at some point, maybe it's Carolina or the Giants, but those are the three preseason games for the Patriots, and then obviously regular season gets underway week one in Miami. Patriots will play the Dolphins, opening up on the road, I think, for the first time in a couple years. Patriots-Dolphins get your first look at uh, Tyreek Hill in a Dolphins uniform, so we'll see how the Patriots match up in that game. Um, then week two, Patriots will travel to the Steelers, take on Pittsburgh. They are playing the AFC North and NFC North this season. Um, then the Patriots will have their home opener September 25th against the Ravens in week three. And then in week four, Patriots will travel to Green Bay, take on the Packers for a Sunday afternoon game at 425 on October 2nd. And then week five, Patriots will be back at home against the Detroit Lions. Uh, week six, the Patriots will travel to Cleveland to take on the Browns. 
Week 7 Monday Night Football at Gillette. Uh, the Patriots will take on the Chicago Bears. So a little Mac Jones versus Justin Fields. That will be pretty interesting. That is Week 7 on Monday Night Football. Uh, week 8, the Patriots will travel to New York to play the Jets on October 30th. Then a week later, Week 9, Patriots will host the Colts at Gillette. And then the Patriots have their bye in Week 10. Then they will welcome the Jets to Gillette in Week 11. Then here are where things get kind of interesting with the schedule. Uh, the Patriots are playing on Thanksgiving for the first time since 2012. I believe the Patriots are playing the Minnesota Vikings uh, Thanksgiving night at 8.20, so that is week 12. Then week 13, the Patriots will play a Thursday night game against the Bills, first matchup against Buffalo this season, which is pretty late. Um, and then week 14, Patriots will have an extra couple days before they play the Arizona Cardinals on Monday night, so second Monday night game the Patriots will play this season. And then week 15, Patriots will travel to play the Raiders um, in Vegas. So it is interesting. They play a preseason and regular season game against Vegas. That week 15 game is an 8-20 game. And then the Patriots will return home for two games. First on uh, Christmas Eve against the Cincinnati Bengals. That game's at 1 o'clock. And then week 17, Patriots will play the Dolphins on New Year's Day. And then week 18, the Patriots will travel to the Bills. That game is either a Saturday or Sunday game that is uh, to be determined there. So obviously it's, I would say it's not an easy schedule. You know, the Patriots don't have, you know, a lot of teams that you can identify and say, oh, you know, this would be an easy win. But to be perfectly honest, it's hard to identify really any games that, you think the Patriots will will win or not because, you know, it's May. We don't know what teams are going to look like in September. We don't know what teams are going to look like late in the season. You know, it's interesting to go through the schedule, but it's hard to kind of make any type of, you know, proclamations about, oh, this is what their record is going to be, or, you know, pencil that in as a loss, pencil that in as a win. Um you know, it is interesting. The Patriots are getting a bunch of uh, primetime games, which is great. You know, I think great for um, kind of a young team with a young, you know, up-and-coming core. I think that that's going to be great for them. Um, you know, I think just at first glance, I don't think it's a terribly difficult schedule, but I don't think it's terribly easy either. You know, you look at some of the teams and some of the places that they're going to be traveling late in the season, you know, kind of don't know how they're going to respond to that. You know, you also know that early on in the season, the Patriots are typically a team that comes out of the gate a little slowly. So, you know, it'll be curious to see how they come out against, um, you know, the games against Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and Green Bay. You know, obviously there are some teams that have changed their player personnel pretty dramatically whether they've brought in players or whether they've lost players. So, you know, a game that you could see on the schedule, you know, a team might become kind of an easier matchup based on what happens to that team 
throughout the season. So I think that's why it's hard to pinpoint, oh, this game will be easy, this game will be hard, because we don't know what teams are going to look like at the beginning of the season. We don't know what teams are going to look like during the season. You know, meaning that there could be a bunch of teams that either surprise and, you know, you go into games thinking that, okay, this is going to be harder than when the schedule came out, you know, or a team goes the other way. Maybe they don't live up to expectations or, you know, a certain player has a hard time fitting in and, you know, the team just can't get off to a good start. You know, I think that's going to be curious to see with certain teams. Um, you know, Cleveland, I think, is one of those teams in particular because I think that we don't know how the whole Deshaun Watson thing is going to turn out. Um, so he may be available, he may not be. And so I think, like, that's an example of a game that it's kind of hard to know what you're going to see from that team. So um, that's kind of all I got with the Patriots' schedule. Um you know, the Patriots have, I think Bill Belichick did have a press conference earlier today. Um, you know, the Patriots are really excited about Mac Jones and kind of where the the team is going. You know, I know that there are, you know, and I don't mean to kind of get into this whole, you know, media thing because we talked about it with the Celtics, but I will say um, that there are, I believe, certain people in the New England media that are trying to grind axes a certain way and trying to make things appear worse than what they actually are. And um, it upsets me because I do think that when people report things or say things a certain way, you know, it's a way to kind of get people up in arms um, and it just is unfortunate that there are certain people that I think frame things a certain way to kind of make it look like, you know, things are problematic in the organization. Um, and I just will say that that is really unfortunate that that kind of has happened a bunch of times throughout this offseason, that there are certain people that are not confident in the Patriots coaching staff and um, don't believe that they are right for their their position or, you know, for example, oh, the Patriots should be hiring an offensive coordinator, you know, what are they doing bringing in Joe Judge or whoever it is? And I just think it's one thing to be skeptical of certain coaches and that's legitimate, but it's a whole nother thing when you know, I don't know, you kind of make things up as to whether people are comfortable with these particular coaches. And um, it's just unfortunate that certain people kind of come out in the media and make things appear to be worse than what they are. Um, and look, we don't know what the truth is, but it just is kind of strange when you hear, you know, oh, the Patriots are really high on Mac Jones and are really high on you know, some of the veteran players are high on him. But then you hear a report that, oh, the Patriot players don't like the coaching staff or are alarmed at the creation of the coaching staff or whatever it is. And it's just, I don't really believe that that's true. I don't believe that, you know, the Patriot players are, you know, upset with the coaching staff or alarmed or whatever. Like, I don't believe that. 
I don't believe that for a second, and I also don't think that that is a founded report either. Um, and I don't know, I think it's just, it's hard to take people at their word when you know that they are, you know, trying to grind an axe against a certain person in the organization. Um, so it's just, it's hard to take people seriously when you know that they have a certain bias against a certain person. Um, and it just is like, you know, it doesn't surprise me that a report like that would come out uh, from a certain person who I believe has an axe to grind against the organization. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, but I just will say that, you know, we're, we're assuming a lot about the coaching staff without actually seeing it in play. Um, and it just seems really frustrating that this year in particular, there are a lot more questions about the way that Bill Belichick does things and the way that the coaching staff does things. You know, at the end of the day, um, and Coach Belichick said this, I think, during the press conference, that at the end of the day, it's about execution of the plays and not the plays themselves. And I think that uh, there are certain people in this, in the media of this team that are way too focused on the people calling the plays and like the quote-unquote credentials of those people. I, I don't know. It's just kind of amazing to me that, you know, all of a sudden we're now questioning how the Patriots do things. And it's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that, you know, Tom Brady's not here. And there are certain people that I think are grinding an axe a little bit more a little bit more severely against Bill Belichick now that Brady's not here. So um, that's kind of all I'm going to say on that. Um, I think we're going to move on talk about the revolution. Uh, big win for the Revs over the weekend in Cincinnati. The Revs uh, took the lead, had to deal with Cincinnati coming back and tying the game a couple of times. Uh, but Tommy McNamara gets the winning goal in the 89th minute. Uh, the Revs pick up, I believe, their third win in a row. So it's uh, it's now uh, positive for the Revolution that they've been able to to win some games, string some string some wins together. Or actually, I should say it differently. The Revolution, I think, have had points in their last three or last four Major League Soccer games, whether they've won or tied. Um, they did also win a U.S. Open Cup game against Cincinnati last week. Uh, they'll play another game this week against uh, NYC. Um, but a, a huge win for the Revs, getting some goals from guys that you really want to see goals from. Um, Adam Buxa has been amazing this season. Um, I truly think that he is the reason why the Revolution are kind of back in contention in the playoffs uh, with how good he's been offensively. He's... One of those guys that I think just with the way that soccer kind of works here with Major League Soccer, he's playing so well that I think he might be playing himself off the team. Um, and I think getting a lot of people excited about his game um, and whether it's, you know, maybe scouts for teams overseas or, you know, the, the Polish national team, um, he's been amazing, you know, and I think that he definitely could 
it could become another situation similar to Dijon Buchanan that he simply just plays too good for the revolution and you know the revolution fetch a big transfer fee for a guy like him um and i mean he is just playing out of his mind right now you know you thought that he played really well last season <laughs> and he's played in my opinion he's been even better than he was last season um so he gets another goal in this game uh sebastian legette also got on the score sheet which is awesome you want to see him scoring some goals um and then tommy mcnamara you know it's kind of interesting he does have a little bit of offensive ability when you give him the chance so that was a great goal for him uh, matt turner obviously has been back in net the revs have had some a little bit more consistently or a little bit more consistent consist a little bit more consistency um defensively and turner obviously has come up huge with some big saves and big games so you know that's also a positive but i think the biggest thing for this team is being able to finish and being able to score goals and i think great to see legit score obviously great to see buxa score um, but i think they're starting to kind of catch their rhythm offensively which is huge you know i think it really kind of gives you some thought that okay they get it together offensively they're going to be just fine so a great win for the revs obviously as i said they will uh, have another u.s open cup game which is a I think it's a North American tournament with uh, teams from the MLS and the other professional leagues. So the Revolution will play uh, Wednesday against NYCFC. It'll be their first matchup with New York City FC since uh, playoffs last season. It will not be an MLS game, but you can be sure that the Revolution are going to be coming out uh, playing hard. Uh, and then the Revolution will also have um, a game this weekend against the Philadelphia Union at 7.30, that game is at Gillette, so hopefully the Revs can keep it going from an offensive standpoint and be able to continue to uh, put up some points to get them further up into the standings. I believe currently that they are maybe a point or two out of the Eastern Conference playoffs, so... You know, obviously mentioned Matt Turner with how well he's played since coming back. Um, but obviously he's playing on uh, borrowed time for the Revolution um, as he will move to uh, the Premier League and play for Arsenal. And I believe that he'll be moving sometime in June. So obviously it's getting very close to that point in the Revolution. Um, you know, hopefully are going to be in a good spot when he leaves. Uh, the Revolution have brought in some new players, um, and one of them was a goalie, uh, Georgi Petrovic, from Serbia. And I think the belief is he will probably take over once Matt Turner leaves. Um, it's a really exciting, you know, young goalie prospect, which is great for the Revolution. That they seem to have a plan in place uh, to see, you know, what the team can look like once Turner is done. Um, or once Turner has left. Um, so, you know, it be interesting to see um, if Petrovic gets any uh, games coming up, if he, you know, if they get, if he gets any games or gets subbed on at certain points. I mean, I don't know if that's 
really possible for a goaltender, but it will be interesting to see if he does get any starts in the next few games as, you know, it starts to get closer and closer to that time where, you know, Matt Turner will leave and the Revolution will not be able to use him. So curious to see what he can do. The Revolution also bringing in, also bringing in midfielder, Dylan Barrero, I missed his name, I'm on the uh, roster, but the Revolution bringing him in from Colombia. He's a 20-year-old midfielder, did appear actually in the game over the weekend against Cincinnati, so the Revolution getting another really exciting kind of young offensive player. I'm curious to see what he can do. Um, I think when you bring in someone young, you know, gives the revolution or gives a team, you know, the ability to kind of have a jolt into their offensive game, which I think, you know, getting a player like that to add to this offense is, you know, coming in at the perfect time. So I'm uh, really looking forward to seeing what he can do uh, with some extended playing time. Um, so it's, it's kind of an exciting time for the revolution as they kind of start to play a little bit better. They are currently, I think, four points out of a playoff berth, um, but they're playing really well offensively, which is great to see, and, you know, starting to kind of get a rhythm going with, hopefully, some of the new players getting into the lineup at some point in maybe the next few weeks. Uh, so hopefully Revolution can keep it going with uh, Open Cup match against NYCFC on Wednesday, and then they will play against the Philadelphia Union on Saturday. So now that we are kind of finished with the New England teams, we're going to move on, talk about the state of the NBA and Stanley Cup playoffs at the moment. Uh, the Golden State Warriors with a 3-0 lead over the Dallas Mavericks in the West Finals. Um, you know, it's same old, same old with uh, Golden State. It seems like it's uh, interesting that, you know, they had a, a couple of down years, you know, thanks to some injuries um, to Steph Curry and to Clay Thompson, obviously. Uh, but they seem to be back, and they seem to be back in full force. You know, not really missing a beat. You know, Andrew Wiggins has been outstanding for them um, in these playoffs. He probably had his best game last night in Game 3 as the Warriors now are a game away from the NBA Finals yet again. You know, Curry and Thompson, you know what you're going to get with them, but they've had some really outstanding kind of secondary pieces that have played really well in the playoffs. You know, Draymond Green, you know what he can do defensively. You know what he can do from a uh, leadership and, and toughness perspective. Um, but you've also had, you know, guys like Wiggins who have played really well. Uh, Kavon Looney has kind of been an unsung hero. Um, the big that I think had a really good game. I think maybe it was game two against Dallas. Um, but I think...
yeah, you had Looney in game two, Wiggins in game three, and then you've had someone like Jordan Poole, who has played really, really well in the playoffs, uh, and has kind of given Golden State another another type of scorer. Um, you know, and it just it just makes them so dangerous offensively, and you know they're pretty versatile defensively too. So um, this is a team that I think you could say that you know Miami or the Celtics, you know, they're a team that's kind of the more like legitimate title contender, I guess. But man, Golden State, I mean, the way that they're playing, it's 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 hard to hard to pick against them um, at this point. So. Um, I really thought Dallas's chance to get back in the series uh, was Game Three. You know, I think that they just have run into a freight train in Golden State, just playing perfect basketball at the perfect perfect time. Um, you know, Dallas. I think that again, they're a versatile team defensively, but I think that it's almost seems like it's a little too much. Re- the offense is almost too reliant on Luca, and I think that. You know, they're always going to be a team that they're going to be reliant on what he does, um, and the team is going to kind of go how he goes. Um, but I think you're just seeing Golden State just so many weapons and so many guys who can hurt you. Um, and I think Dallas just might be a little bit too overmatched in this series. Um, you know, they've had a tremendous postseason run, but you have Golden State who is playing right now like you know they can they they should have no problem winning another championship which is kind of crazy when you consider you know the down years that they had but they're back and they're you know as dangerous if not more dangerous than they've ever been so definitely an exciting time to be a warriors fan um some other notes the uh lakers appear to be uh sniffing around to hire a new head coach uh, it seems like Juwan Howard from Michigan declined the Lakers' interest in hiring him. There also, I think, is some there are some rumors out there that the Lakers are trying to get Doc Rivers from the Sixers. So I'll be curious to see if that goes anywhere. Uh, Reggie Bullock was named the NBA Social Justice Champion over. I think that was maybe a couple of days ago. So congrats to him. Obviously, NBA playoffs. Tonight, Celtics and Heat game four at 8.30. So now we'll move on, talk a little bit about the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, Bruins obviously not in it, so uh, I'll be honest, my viewing interest is not as high as it typically would be, but uh, some really interesting series that are going on right now. You had three games yesterday, Tampa Bay with a 5-1 win over Florida. They are up three games to none, and not to kind of switch sports here, but or not to compare sports here, uh, Tampa Bay, they remind me very much of the Warriors right now, that they're a team that just, the guys that they have, have the ability to flip the switch and have the ability to play with a killer instinct. And, you know, the Lightning are just blowing out the the Panthers right now, and it's kind of crazy. You know, I think that Tampa Bay is a team that they are incredibly hungry, um, and they really want to get another championship, which 
is kind of terrifying for the rest of the league, I think. You know, they're a team that kind of, I didn't want to say stumbled through the regular season, but they kind of went through the regular season knowing that, you know, they almost were going to, they knew that they were going to flip a switch in the playoffs, and that's exactly what's happened. You know, I think that they, a little hard, I think the first round series against Toronto was a little harder than maybe they thought they thought it was going to be. You know, I honestly didn't think that Toronto played badly in that series. Um, but I think that Tampa Bay is really flexing their muscles and showing the NHL that, yeah, Florida can win the President's Trophy, but uh, it don't matter if you don't perform in the playoffs. And uh, Florida has one power play goal in the entire playoffs, and they're just, uh, Tampa Bay is just too much for them. I think they've, they've really kind of exposed them to be like, okay, Florida, you can score four goals a game in the regular season, but, you know, you can't play the same way in the playoffs, you know, and I think the Bruins kind of were rudely awakened as to, you know, you're not going to get the same rush opportunities that you would get in a regular season, and Tampa Bay is just, uh, you know, kind of outclassing them in every different, in every facet of the game. So Tampa Bay goes for the sweep tonight in game four in Tampa. The uh, Rangers winning their first game of the series against Carolina 3-1 to yesterday. Um, Igor Shesterkin came up big, Rangers with a couple uh, of big goals. So they're, they're now back in the series. It's 2-1 Carolina. Um, Edmonton with a big win over Calgary last night, 4-1. to They have a two games to one lead, and um, they are playing unbelievable hockey right now. They're uh, a little scary, and I do think that, you know, if you saw what happened last night and you're kind of aware of Milan Lucic, maybe, maybe on, maybe, maybe on purpose, maybe not running into Mike Smith. Um, I think that they may have uh, poked the bear a little too much. And I think that you're seeing an Edmonton team that is playing with a chip on their shoulder, and um, that is not what you want to see. Um, if you're a team that's a number one seed, and you're playing against a team that, you know, people I think had a lot of questions about whether Edmonton can perform, but yikes, like they are playing at an elite level offensively. Mike Smith has turned back the clock to 2012, and this Edmonton team um, is starting to give me feels of a team that could go really far um, and possibly even win the cup. You know, they're playing at such an elite level offensively. They're getting enough defensively. They're getting enough in goal. You know, the their elite players are playing elite hockey, so... Um, you know, McDavid and Dreisaitl have been amazing. Um, Evander Kane's been really huge for them in the playoffs so far. Um, all I'm going to say about him, you know, he's played well on the ice, but I don't really feel like saying anything else. Um, so, you know, they're a team that's really been dangerous. Um, so that game of four is on Tuesday. And then the Carolina Rangers series, that game four is also on Tuesday. Uh, Colorado-St. Louis will play Game 4 tonight in St. Louis. That's been an interesting series. Uh, Jordan Bennington going out after an injury, after a collision with his cadre, and I forget who the defenseman was, uh, but I think Bennington is out for the series. 
Um, you know, I will say that unfortunately, we've kind of seen the ugly side of hockey in the last couple of days. If you've not been paying attention, um, it appears that Nazem Kadri for the Avalanche has gotten uh, threats, like and gotten death threats. And I'll just be honest, I don't really know how to address that because. <sighs> It's just at the end of the day, guys, it's sports. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter that much. I think it's just you don't have to get so overly invested in sports to the point that you are threatening the life of a player. That's just too far. And I'm not saying that anyone in this podcast or anyone that listens to this podcast would, you know, threaten somebody's life, but it's just... You can't do that. You have to recognize that that is not okay. You know, I, I don't really think it matters if, you know, you want to insult guys and, you know, hurl expletives at guys. You know, I think that there's a certain point that I think, you know, there's a certain line that you don't cross in terms of yelling things at guys, but it's a whole nother thing to be threatening the life of a player, and that's not okay. And I don't care what the player did. Um, and I'll just be honest, there was nothing wrong with that play. If you go back and see the replay, you know, both the guys are going for the puck. Kadri makes contact with the defenseman. You know, he falls into Bennington. You know, Bennington and that St. Louis team, they can get mad. You know, they can be pissed off. And they kind of have every right to be considering what happened in the playoffs last year. Um, also with Kadri, but... You can't be threatening the life of someone. And, you know, Kadri does have a reputation. I think that that's fair to say. But death threats is just is just not okay. And um, it's just really disappointing that there are people that have to resort to that when it's just sports. It's just sports, you guys. It doesn't matter that much. You know, I love sports. Sports are my entire life. You know, I live and die with with sports, but it's never a reason to go that over the line um, and attack someone and attack their life. That's just not okay. You can't do that, and uh, people should know better. You know, I don't even feel like that's something that you should even think about. You know, like, that's one of those things where it's just obvious you know, you just assume that nobody is going to take things that far. Um, because at the end of the day, it's just a game. It's not any reason to threaten somebody's life. It's just not, it's just not okay. And it really, it, it annoys me that it seems like it is way too easy for people to degrade athletes and... You know, whether it's, you know, racial taunts, whether it's whatever it is, it just is like fans just disrespecting players and not having respect for a human being because that's what it is. You know, these athletes are no different than you and me. It doesn't give you the right to treat them. And it, it, it gives you no right to treat, like, you would not say to a, you know, person walking the street, 
you wouldn't say what you say to, or it's just like they're just regular people. And it's just, it's not that important. Sports are not that important to threaten someone's life at the end of the day. So that's really all I'm going to say on that. We'll take a look at some other NFL notes. Uh, Jadavion Clowney is returning to the Browns on a one-year deal. Uh, according to 49ers tight end George Kittle, the uh, quarterback battle between Garoppolo and Lance is a toss-up, as he says. Kind of curious to see if Garoppolo gets traded um, at any point. Obviously, there's still a lot of high-profile free agents available, so that'll be curious to see what happens. Um, and then, in terms of schedule, Buffalo and the Rams will open the season on or in September, open the season with a Thursday night game in L.A. So we're going to take a quick look at Major League Baseball. Um, you know, obviously, as I mentioned about, you know, things being said, there was a incident that took place over the weekend with the White Sox and the Yankees with, um, you know, Josh Donaldson thinking that it's okay to uh, refer to Tim Anderson as as Jackie, you know, and essentially thinking that it's some inside joke between them. Um, I I just like I don't I don't get that. I know I think that I think that Josh knows exactly what he's doing when he when he says that, you know. And this refers to uh, Tim Anderson. I think referring to himself um, as some type of like modern day Jack Robinson. I believe that that's what he said. I don't know exactly, uh, but I think there was a Sports Illustrated article where he had said that. So there was kind of a dust up and a brawl between the White Sox and the Yankees, and Josh Donaldson apparently thinks that it's okay to uh, refer to him as that, and you know, like he knows exactly what he's saying, uh, and that's just really unfortunate that we have to have something like that happen. Um, you know, I think that Major League Baseball is looking into it, looking to address the situation, which I think is, it's just too bad at the end of the day that I think we're getting to a point, it seems like, that not only do... Not only do fans not seemingly, or it's it's it seems like not only are fans not respecting athletes, we have our own athletes that aren't respecting each other. And you know, obviously, at the end of the day, that comment or the particular word that Josh used. Obviously, at the end of the day, it's not really the word that matters, but it's kind of the, the, the undertones of using that word. And, you know, that's just unfortunate. And I think that, you know, it's just not okay. And it just kind of, it blows my mind that there are certain people that, you know, think that they can say things and think that it's, you know, okay. And I just like, it's just like, I think that it's obvious that the two of them 
both Josh Donaldson and Tim Anderson are not friendly. You know, there was a there was a moment, I think a couple weeks ago, where the Yankees and White Sox got into like a bit little bit of a dust up when I think it was Donaldson tagged Anderson very hard and they kind of were not or Tim Anderson was not pleased with that. And it's just like, okay, you guys clearly are not, you know, buddy and friends that you can't just say, you know, call him Jackie or whatever. And it's just like, you know, you know exactly what you're saying. You know, you don't have to play the whole like, oh, I was joking. It's like, no, you know exactly what you're saying. And I just, that just really kind of bothered me. Um, taking a look at the Major League Baseball standings now, um, as we kind of talked about how well the Red Sox are playing, not much has changed in the division, unfortunately. The Red Sox still 10 games back, but at 19 and 22, winning five in a row. So the Yankees still atop the AL East, five-game lead over the Rays. They're at 29 and 12. Uh, Minnesota in first place in the Central, 25 and 16. Four games over the White Sox, who the Red Sox will play next. Houston with a game and a half lead over the Angels at 27 and 15. The New York Mets still lead the National East by eight games. They're 28 and 15. Milwaukee leads the Central by three games over the Cardinals. And then the Dodgers lead the Padres by half a game in the National League West. So I think that will do it for me this week. It's been really nice to be able to be back on the podcast after not being on, not doing shows last week, but it's good to be back. Really excited to tell you guys about the uh, Guest Friday guest, but I'm going to keep that uh, close to the close to the chest, as they say. Uh, give you guys an announcement maybe in a couple days as to who we're talking to. Very excited uh, to talk to this person later this week, so definitely keep you updated on all that. Um, as always, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify, you can also follow our socials on Twitter and Facebook. All right, everyone, enjoy the week. The weather is uh, starting to turn, so it's starting to get really nice out. So everyone go out and enjoy the weather, and we'll talk to you later this week.